to Luke chapter 7. Can we do that this morning? Luke chapter 7. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever gotten a bill in the mail that when you looked at the balance due, I mean, it just absolutely rocked your world? I mean, you look, whoa, whoa. I mean, you were just totally shocked. How about a utility bill? <laughs> How about your Seward County property taxes? All right, we'll leave that one alone. Let's go back to the utility bill. Remember years ago, when we were living over here on Beach Street, we, we bought and installed one of those little uh, refrigerated air conditioners. Uh, it just, I mean, it, it just didn't stay very cool uh, in our room. It was toward the back of the house. And, and so we, we bought one of those and got it in the window and plugged it in. Now, we had never owned one before. We had never operated one before. And we didn't know any better. So we just, we just let that sucker run all day, every day. We thought, hey, a little cool's good, a lot of cool's better. And so we would come home, and the room would be cool. And it's like, yes, this is awesome. And then I got our electric bill for the next month. Whoa! Taking that thing out, turning it off, and we'll, we'll just... We'll sleep with ice cubes or something, but mercy, I didn't realize that takes a lot of money to run one of those things, and, and I was, was really, really surprised, but I wasn't as surprised as a man in North Carolina who received his water bill, which at first appeared to be fairly normal with a balance due of $189.92. But then he saw the service charge, which tacked on, listen to this, tacked on an additional $99,999,999. Even my property taxes are looking good right now. Come to find out, there was a glitch in the software used by a third-party company that helps send out payment reminders. And I share that illustration with you this morning to say this. The idea of a $100 million debt is more than, than most of us could even begin to grasp due to the size of it. But I would submit to you this morning that compared to the debt Jesus paid on our behalf, a hundred million dollars seems pretty inconsequential. I want to preach to you today under this title, Our Canceled Debts. If you have your Bible open to Luke chapter 7, Look with me in verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him, him would be Jesus, 
that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Years ago, I was reminded of this, I was um, actually looking through uh, the Bible I used to, to preach from. Um, many years ago, I wrote some thoughts in the margin of my Bible in Luke chapter 7 uh, regarding this thought of, of Jesus being in the house. And the first thing that I'd written in the margin of my Bible was this. Jesus was in the house because he was invited to be there. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I want Jesus in the house today. Uh, without him, this is nothing but a social gathering. I want Jesus to be in the house every time we gather together. I don't care if it's Wednesday night, Sunday night, Sunday morning. Our desire and our heart's prayer to God ought to be this. God, show up. God, show out. God, be there. Be the focal point of our praise and our worship every single time we get together. And then the second thought I wrote was this. When Jesus is in the house, people know it. Look at verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, we'll come back to that, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. So word had, had gotten out that, that Jesus was in the house. And listen, that ought to be our desire uh, for liberal Kansas, that when you show up at 310 West Pancake, I mean, it's just known that when you go there, God's there. That Jesus is there, that the Spirit of God is there, that, that there's just something different about walking in to that place at 310 West Pancake than there is any other place I've ever been. Thirdly, when Jesus is in the house, people want to be there. I tell you, I, I, have, I have gone to churches, I have preached in churches where it's like, wow, I'm not sure I really even want to be here. I'm telling you, and, and you, you hear it from every pastor who ever comes and stands uh, in this pulpit. And we don't ask for it, we don't coach it, but it comes from their lips in one form or, or the other. And there are just not many places like this place. And I'm thankful for that. I don't boast in that. I don't brag about that. I'm humbled by that. That even those who would come from, from outside of our fellowship family would realize that there's something different about that. And people want to be where Jesus is. And then fourthly, when Jesus is in the house, lives are changed. Which is really the, the um, great illustration of this story is a great illustration of that very truth. So Jesus was invited into the house of a Pharisee whom he later identifies by name as being a man named Simon. That's in verse 40. And we're not really sure why Jesus was invited. Because if you know your Bible, then you know that the Pharisees in general um, really were not, uh, had no particular affinity for Jesus or his ministry. And by all appearances, Simon was, was running true to course. As Jesus points out later in the text, and we'll read it later, Simon didn't even extend to him the courtesies 
that were common in that day and time. For example, at that time, at the time this incident took place, whenever a guest would enter a home, it was just a common act of hospitality to greet them with a, with a kiss, much like we would, would offer somebody our hand. After that, they would be escorted to their place at the table where a servant in the house would remove their sandals and would wash their feet. Finally, the servant would anoint the head of the guest with oil. But none of that, none of that happened when Jesus came to this man's house, which I think uh, suggest an underlying animosity on the part of this man named Simon. It seems that he went out of his way to avoid making the Lord feel welcome. And then in sharp contrast is this woman who appears to have been an uninvited guest at this meal. And she enters the area where all of this is taking place. The reason for her coming is not uh, really stated clearly, but I think we can take from, from what we did read that she was there because she heard about Jesus. And what she had heard about this man named Jesus was that he was a friend of sinners. And if that was the case, then she, she knew that she and he were destined to be good friends because certainly she met the qualifications to be called a sinner. Again, I, I'm just speculating because we're not told for certain, but it is most commonly believed that this woman was a prostitute. Verse 37 leads us to believe that she was a, a very well-known woman in the city for her sin. Jesus referred to her many sins, as we will see in verse 47. And he could have very well been referring to her many encounters throughout the city. Something else to consider is that those who have studied ancient customs tell us that prostitutes of that day often wore a vial of, of perfume hanging by a cord around their necks. In a culture where bathing was infrequent, a pleasant fragrance would have been their stock in trade. A drop or two would be used to entice prospective customers. But regardless of, of who she was or what she was, her reputation was well known. And no doubt the other guests, along with the host of this event, were appalled by her uninvited presence. And if she was, as I just described and is commonly believed, a prostitute, then you can imagine how the atmosphere of that gathering must have changed when she walked in. The glares, the gasps, the gossip. And you have to know that this woman expected nothing less. 
But everyone else, listen, everyone else in that room faded into a mist of tears because she saw Jesus. And having her alabaster box of ointment, verse 38 says that she stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. At some point, this unnamed woman became so overwhelmed as the result of the, the burden of sin she carried and, and wanting so badly to be forgiven. She began to weep uncontrollably. And she saw that her tears were falling on the feet of Jesus and she had nothing else to wipe them with or to dry them with. And so the Bible says she let down her hair and began wiping his feet, in effect, washing them. Now get this picture in your mind. She then kissed his feet. And the tense of the the Greek verb used for kiss suggests that she kissed his feet again and again and again, which Jesus confirms in verse 45. Then, <clears throat> in perhaps the greatest display of genuine repentance, she uses the contents in the alabaster box to anoint his feet. And I'll say more about that later. Let's look at the, the response of Simon in verse 39. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Though he didn't say anything out loud, Simon had plenty to say in his heart about Jesus, which I think reveals much about his motivation for inviting him to his house in the first place. So, so picture this. Here, here's Simon. He's the epitome of spirituality. So he thinks. And he thinks that because, number one, he's a Pharisee. And number two, he's religious. you got to know this guy had all of his spiritual T's crossed, all of his I's dotted. No doubt he fasted and prayed, tithed, gave alms to the poor, he was a respectable citizen, no doubt, in his community. He served on all the right boards, on all the right committees. He never missed a, a Sabbath service or a feast day. I'm telling you, this guy would have, would have known the Scriptures frontwards and backwards. He was a great man, a legend in his own mind. And in his mind, as he sees this, this scene unfolding, he begins passing judgment on Jesus. 
If this man were really a prophet, then he would be able to detect people's character. If Jesus knew this woman was a sinner, then he would have nothing to do with her. If Jesus were a true teacher, then he would not allow her to touch him in that way. And then we come to verse 40. I love verse 40. And Jesus answering said unto him. Now wait a minute. Did I miss it? Or did we just read that Simon just thought these things? Simon didn't say anything out loud. He didn't make these accusations or cast these aspersions toward the Lord vocally or verbally. Yet Jesus answers him vocally. Now I don't know about you, but that's a little scary. Because Jesus knows what we're thinking. Hello, even right now where you're sitting right now, Jesus knows what you're thinking. Stop it, Bradley. Think about that right now. He knows every thought that is coming in to your mind and, and into my mind. Somehow Simon thinks Jesus doesn't know what kind of, of woman is doing this to him. But listen to me this morning. Not only did Jesus know who she was and know what she was, he also knew what Simon was thinking but not saying. Now, he accused Jesus of not being a true prophet. If there was a sign of somebody being a true prophet, that's it. Look at the rest of verse 40. Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And Simon says, Master, say on. Can I just encourage you with something this morning? If at some point in the message Jesus speaks to you through the still small voice of, of, of his spirit, and he says to you, hey, you and I have something to talk about, would you promise to listen because no doubt God's going to speak to you today. And I hope you'll listen. And I hope you'll respond in the way that His Spirit leads you to respond. At this point in the narrative, Jesus uses a parable, and we're, we're getting into the message here. He uses a parable to teach some very important principles that are as meaningful today as they were when they were spoken. Look at verse 41. There was a certain creditor, Jesus says, which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to, excuse me, nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he, Jesus, said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman, but he's talking to Simon. He says, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, 
But she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the head, with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. And my head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And then Jesus, verse 48, he looks at the woman and he says, Thy sins be forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, here they are, they're not saying it out loud, they're thinking it, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said unto the woman, verse 50, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Now, here's the deal this morning. You owe $50,000 to Community Bank. I owe $500 to Community Bank. Neither of us, none of us today, have a penny to our name. And we get a call one morning from the president of the bank and his message to both of us is the same. Your debt is forgiven. Your debt has been canceled. Which of us is going to be the happiest? Well, no doubt I'm going to be happy because I don't owe the bank $500 anymore, but you're really going to be happy because you don't owe the bank $50,000 anymore. The one, I think you understand this, the one with the biggest debt is going to be the most thankful. I want to share three thoughts with you by way of spiritual application and then give you an opportunity at the close to respond to what God is going to do in your heart and here's the first thought this morning all of us all of us have a a spiritual debt there are no doubt many in here this morning who would have no problem agreeing with what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 where, where he wrote there is none righteous no not one And if you would agree with that, then no doubt you would agree what he wrote uh, with what he wrote a few verses later in verse 23 where he said, For all, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As I stand here and and look out among those who've who've come today, uh, there are no doubt some among us who would would be honest and and they would say, Pastor Prater, I'm a $50,000 sinner. I have the scars to prove it. I have the record to prove it. I have the regrets to prove it. I have the guilt to prove it. I have the shame to prove it. 
I have the baggage to prove it. Preacher, I'm just telling you, I am a $50,000 sinner. And others among us today would perhaps say this, Preacher, I'm a $500 sinner. Because by God's grace, I don't have all the scars and all the baggage and all the regrets from a life lived wrong for many, many years. And if that's your story today, praise God. Be thankful for that. But may I just say this? Whether you consider yourself a big sinner or a little sinner, you're still a sinner. Whether you've lived a moral life or whether you've lived a messed up life, you're a sinner. And your sin has made you, listen, has made you a debtor to God. But here's the problem. You can never repay your debt. And that's the point that Jesus makes in his parable when he says neither debtor had anything to pay with. Whether you owe $500 or $50,000 to the bank, what, what difference does it make if you don't have any money? Are you any closer to paying your $500 debt than the other guy is to paying his $50 debt? No. Because neither one of you have a penny to your name. So whether you grew up in church and never really lived a life of big sin, or whether you're here today and, 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 and you're your, your life has been nothing, it seems, but big sin after big sin. That's irrelevant. You, ha- you understand that today? It is irrelevant. The point is, you have nothing to pay your sin debt with. Well, I'll just ignore it. Ignoring it is not going to make it go away. Any more than ignoring your bank debt. Is going to get it, make it go away. So you get the you get the the balance due in the mail. You just throw it in the trash. Next month you get it. And you just throw it in the trash. I'm just ignoring it. I'm going to pay attention to it. How many of you think it's going to go away? No. The truth of the matter is, if you keep ignoring that, regardless of of, of how small or how large it is, eventually it's going to cost you. It is. It's going to cost you. And you can try, listen, you can try and ignore God's dealings with you about your sin and your need of a Savior. But in the end, listen to me this morning, it's going to cost you your soul and a place in heaven for all of eternity. Well... Pastor, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just pay it in installments. I'll, I'll just pay it a, a, a little bit here, a, a little bit there. How are you going to do that? You're broke. You don't have anything. You're spiritually, listen, you are spiritually bankrupt. That's, that's like saying, well, I'll do a little here for God, and I'll do a little there for God. And by the time you die, your hope will be 
that you have done enough to settle your spiritual debt. Listen, that's nothing but salvation by works. And the Bible says that we are not saved by works. That concept of salvation has has always puzzled me. And has always brought up a, a number of questions. For example, how do you know when you've done enough? Seriously, how do you know when, when, you've, when you've been good enough? If salvation is by works, then how do you know when you've given enough? Is there some point along the line where, where, where you get the signal from heaven that you've helped enough? And so you finally get there and you get this signal from God, hey, you're good, and then the next day you mess up. Is all of that erased? Do you have to go all the way back here to the beginning and start giving again and helping again and doing these things over and over and over again? I mean, how bad do you have to be for God to just erase everything? Does he have some kind of holy ledger, some kind of holy software where he does all of the adding and subtracting? How does he know how much to add for which work and how much to subtract for each sin? I mean, that's got to be the line of thinking if, if, if you're convinced that, that you can be saved by works. But here's the ultimate question. If you can be saved by being good and doing good, then why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he go through the agony of Calvary if we just have to be good and get to heaven? If we just have to do good and get to heaven, why? Why did he bear the stripes on his back and the crown on his head and the the nails in his hands and in his feet and and the spear in his side and the, the mocking and the cruelty and the spitting on him? Why did he go through that if all we have to do is just be good? Say, preacher, that's ridiculous. You're telling me. It is ridiculous. Do you know there are people, maybe some here, who sincerely believe that at the end of life, if somehow their good works outweigh their bad works, then they're going to get to go to heaven. And do you know that some of those people are some of the most religious people you'll ever meet? And they are convinced that their religiousness, in the end, it's all going to pay off. Jesus is going to be okay with it. Can I just share some good news with you this morning? God has already paid your sin debt. And so if you're one of those this morning, like my wife was for so many years of her life, trying to earn God's favor and trying to earn God's love, Listen to me, you can just stop it. 
Like right now, today, July 12, 2020, just stop it. Quit trying to earn God's love. Quit trying to earn God's favor. When Jesus died on the cross, listen, he paid it all. And the only thing God is asking from you is to accept that truth and be saved. You say, well, preacher, that sounds like cheap salvation to me. Oh, mercy, my friend, you are so wrong. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. Let's go back to the, to the illustration. When the banker lets you off the hook for your debt, that doesn't mean that, that someone is not having to pay something. You with me? Here's what it means. It means that you are not having to pay. But here's the deal. If I understand this right, Brother Farron, the bank's taking the hit. It's, it, it's costing, in, in our store, and this thing just got messed up, Brother Rob, so turn that off, we'll use this. It means that, that in our story, the bank is now going to have to pay off. They're going to take a $50,500 hit. And can I just tell you this this morning? That it cost Jesus his only begotten son. It cost him everything. Everything. And here's the final thought this morning. I love this. Anyone who comes to Jesus in repentance and faith can be forgiven. This woman, in all likelihood, was a prostitute. Who knows how many marriages she had broken up? Who knows how many homes she had wrecked? But none of that mattered to Jesus at this point. Because he knew that in her heart, and we've already, we've already seen in the passage, Jesus knows what we're thinking. He, he can see our hearts. And he knows and he sees that in her heart, she was sorry for everything she had ever done. Jesus knew that she was serious about changing her life. And that she was willing to forsake all to follow him. Let me point out a couple of very significant things about this woman's actions will be done. First of all, she wiped the feet of Jesus with her hair. And here's why that's significant this morning. Paul states in one of his letters to the Corinthians that a woman's hair is her glory. You know what this woman was saying? She was making a statement that said to Jesus, life is no longer going to be about me. It's going to be about you. 
See, she had lived her entire life for herself. And at the end of the day, all she had to show for it was heartache and heartbreak. The only thing she had for living for herself was guilt and shame. Living for herself had finally brought her to a breaking point, and she was ready to change. And until you come to that place in your life, you're not going to be saved. It's called repentance. And it's in your heart saying, I'm tired of living for myself. I'm tired of living without God in my life. And from this day on, I'm done. And I'm all in. I'm ready to give God all of who I am and all of what I have. When you come to that place in your heart, then you're ready to be born again. A second significant act in this story is that she used the ointment in her alabaster box to anoint the feet of Jesus. Now here's why that's significant. The ointment was was a very large part of, of her life as a prostitute. She used it to lure prospective customers. But what she was saying, listen to me, what she was saying was that that part of her life was over. She said, I'm done. She wasn't going to need that perfume anymore because she was truly repenting of her sin. She was turning her back on that way of life and was devoting herself totally to loving Jesus and living for him. And again, I'll say, anyone who's willing to do that will be forgiven. And notice, I love this, notice the Lord's words to her. I mean, his last words in verse 50, go in He could say that because for the first time ever, this woman was going to be, she's going to be able to live her life without guilt, without regret, without shame. And that's what God can do. God can take all of that away for those who are willing to truly repent and come to him in faith. So let me ask you this morning, where where do you fit in in this story? Preacher, here's my story. (laughs) I was a $5 million sinner. But God saved me. God canceled my sin debt. The day that I placed my faith and trust in Him as my Lord and Savior, God took care of all of that. Let me ask you this. When's the last time 
you were so moved by that thought that you bent a knee you said God thank you God I don't know where I would be today without you it's a sad day when we get over our salvation the day that we begin to take for granted everything that God has done for us let's not do that some folks here may relate more to Simon Simon's self-righteousness follow me here caused him to repel at the thought of being in the presence of a sinner and in essence he withdrew on the other hand, Jesus, in his perfect righteousness, drew near to this sinner. Let me challenge you with this this morning. If your brand of righteousness causes you to avoid sinners because somehow you think you're better than them, you need to check your righteousness. Because that's not God's righteousness. That's self-righteousness. That's being a Pharisee. That's looking down your long-pointed, pious nose at somebody and say, I'm better than that. The only thing different between you and them is that you're a sinner saved by grace. And they're still a sinner without grace. But we're no better than they are. And finally... Maybe somebody here today feels like this woman before she approached Jesus. And here's your fear today. You're not good enough to approach him. Jesus would never accept me. Jesus could never love me. Jesus could never forgive me. I'm just not good enough. Well, let me put your mind at ease. You aren't good enough. None of us are good enough. But when Jesus looks at you, he sees you not for what you have become. He sees you for what you can become through his grace and forgiveness. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to have a word of prayer this